All right. Well, last week, I tried to make one main point, and that is that interpreting the Bible is actually kind of hard, but everyone can do it to one degree or another, uh, similar to the way that everyone's an athlete, like we're all made with moving parts and we can move around and do certain things. And some of us are naturally better at it than others, but with good coaching, we can improve and become conscious of what we're doing. I think when it comes to reading anything, including the Bible, some of us are naturally better at it than others. Some people really like to read and have uh, developed an intuitive sense about how to read. But then with good teaching and training, they become better readers and more aware of what they're doing. So everyone can do it, but I think everybody needs to be taught how to do it. And I think this is especially true with reading the Bible. Um, This is something that goes against the spirit of American individualism when it comes to the development of religion in America. Um, If you kind of trace, especially Baptist history, Baptists have a bad history of not wanting to be educated at times and like prizing a lack of education. Um, And this is a current thing today. So I was talking with a gentleman not from our church this week, and he said, wouldn't it be better if pastors didn't have any training and if they just let the Holy Spirit help them interpret the Bible and and lead the church? And I told him, I understand where you're coming from, but the problem is, ostensibly, every Christian has the Holy Spirit, and Christians disagree about what the Bible says, and Christians aren't God. We're not aware of everything that God's aware of. We're not even aware of what we're bringing to the table. And especially for those of us who don't have any training in philosophy or language, we, we bring a lot of assumptions to the table, and maybe they're wrong. You know, we, we might be reading incorrectly based on poor assumptions that we have. So education is a good thing. Reading in community is a good thing uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is because you don't know if anyone else disagrees with you about what the Bible means until you talk with somebody who disagrees with you. Uh, I think the best thing that could happen in this class, if you disagree with anything that I'm saying, is that you become aware that you actually hold a certain position on something. You know, so whether we're talking about the way language works or Bible translations or how genres work, Um, If you disagree with something I'm saying, I think that's fine and it would be a good conversation to have, but maybe the best thing about it is that you'll be aware for the first time that you actually are holding to a certain belief about how language works and you never thought about that before. So part of this class is just helping you become conscious of what maybe you're not conscious of, but then the rest of the class is hopefully helping you become a better reader of the Bible. Um, so that's what, that was kind of the whole lesson last week, is reading the Bible is hard, and we say certain statements, but if we actually investigate them further, the statement doesn't hold up. So the, the main one I got after last week was, we believe that we should obey the Bible. But then I gave the example of, you know, this member of Resurrection Church, this was all hypothetical, hanging out with coworkers in there eating catfish, a fish without scales, and their unbeliever coworker who knows the Torah really well says, well, if you need to obey the Bible, how come you're disobeying Leviticus, I don't know what it is, 23 or whatever that says, um, you can eat anything 
the lakes or the rivers that has scales and fins, but anything without scales and fins should be abhorrent to you. So if we say, well, we have to obey the Bible, but then we're eating catfish, we're not obeying everything in the Bible. Um, if you walked into church today and you didn't greet people with a kiss, you're not obeying the Bible. Um, if you didn't get up this day and go to Troas to get Paul's coat for him, you're not obeying the Bible. So when we say things like, we Christians believe you must obey the Bible, I think that's a fine sentiment to teach to our children in uh, immature Christians. We want to have a disposition to saying, whatever the Bible says, I want to do. But we also have to learn how to read the Bible, and we have to learn our place in the uh, timeline of God's redemptive work in the world, because it's, not, it's just simply not true that we obey everything in the Bible. Uh, does, does this make sense? So I'm problematizing it. I'm making it difficult a little bit because we like those statements. Christians believe we must obey the Bible. It's our authority for life and practice. It's our ultimate authority. We, and we should say those things, but because we're growing in the faith, we have to be able to actually understand what we mean by that. And we don't mean what a lot of non-Christians think we mean when we say that. So I would rather, you know, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable by saying Christians don't believe we should obey everything in the Bible here, where we can talk about it and have on ongoing discussions, than for you to run into a non-Christian and you're trying to share the gospel with them and they raise the simple objection, when, you know, like, why aren't you obeying the Bible? And then why isn't it okay for me to disobey the Bible? You know, so... Uh, sometimes we'll say, well, we don't obey something in the Bible because it's cultural. And, and then your non-believing friend says, well, homosexuality is just a cultural thing. So how come you can disobey a cultural aspect because it's cultural, but you aren't letting me? Why are you telling me that homosexuality is a sin? And, and we have to have a a deep enough understanding of how to interpret and relate to the Bible that you can engage in that conversation in a helpful way, not in a way that just says, you know, well, you're just wrong. You know, we, we have to help people understand. Um, does, does this make sense? We've, we've got to get a little bit uncomfortable with the way we relate to the Bible so that we can relate to it better. All right, anything anyone wants to follow up on from last week? If there's nothing, that's fine. All right. I want to make you a little bit more uncomfortable today. Okay. <clears throat> and eventually, we'll correct course a little bit and, and get you back to feeling a little bit comfortable. But this is, a, this is actually the way Jesus thought. So this is a quick side note. Jesus made a lot of unbalanced statements to throw people off to wake them up to reality a little bit. Um, so when the rich guy came to Jesus and says, I've done everything, um, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus kind of says something unbalanced and not true in every instance. He says, you need to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and, and then follow me, essentially. You know, then you'll have eternal life. Now, if someone asks you, how can I have eternal life? Would you say, sell all of your possessions— and give it to the poor, give, give the proceeds to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. 
I don't think any of us would say that. But Jesus said it to unbalance this guy who had convinced himself that he could love money with all of his heart, but then say that he loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what Jesus was trying to do is to wake him up to see what his situation really was with this unbalanced statement. Now, I, I would imagine, you know, I don't know if I've never seen any of the chosen, but if they did that scene, I would imagine that they might do a fully imaginative follow-up where Jesus and his disciples are walking, and they're like, wait, do, you, do I need to go back and sell my house? Because I want eternal life too. And Jesus would be like, no, you don't need to sell your house. Like, I'm trying to get this guy to see his idolatry. But he uses unbalanced statements all the time, and, and we need that. The hard part then is rebalancing, you know. Um, young people like me are really good at unbalancing things. We're not always good at rebalancing. So if you have questions after this and need help rebalancing, let me know. All right, here's, here's where I want to start. I want to start talking about inerrancy. You know, if we're going to say we need to interpret the Bible, we've got to understand what kind of book the Bible is. Um, and a lot of you probably have heard the sentence, the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Are you guys familiar with those kind of sentences? Okay, I want to just briefly talk about some of those terms and what they mean and what they don't mean. And then I, if we have time, I want to talk about Bible translations because we have, if we're going to read and interpret the Bible, we have to you know, use a translation, unless you're fluent in Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. None of us in here are. You know, even like Steve or Ethan who's taught Greek or me who's taught Greek, we're not fluent in it. We don't talk in Greek all the time. We have some translating abilities maybe, but we've got to be careful when we start talking about the Bible, um, not only to realize the great gift that it is, but also the distance we are from it, okay? Um, and that's not a problem. It's a problem for Muslims, you know? So if you ever um, pick up an English copy of the Quran, it will say the meaning of the Quran because they have a certain belief about their holy scriptures where the non-Arabic editions are not the Quran anymore, where we believe our Bible translations are the Bible, you know, so we've got to talk about some of these things, especially because we live in a neighborhood and city where we have a lot of Muslims, and we want to be able to talk meaningfully about what we think about our biblical texts in conversation with them, okay? All right, let's talk about inerrancy. What, what, if you had to give a definition of inerrancy, what would it be? Ethan and Tyler can't answer, and Steve, because I know they've sat in a class, or Mel, or Josh, okay? <laughs> Apparently, we have a lot of seminarians in here. Inerrancy. Rachel, because uh, Mel talked to you about that. Okay. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah. Okay. Word for word, God breathed, so kind of maybe a combination of inerrancy and inspiration, where every single Greek word was maybe dictated by God or something like that. There are different ideas of inspiration. Um, so that's starting to get us on the right track of what a lot of people would say, because it's hard to separate inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration. 
Um, all right, who else? Take a stab at inerrancy. This is partly for me to know what's in the heads of all of you. Okay, yeah, that's the standard sentence, I think, without error in its original manuscripts. Okay, what would that mean if someone said the Bible is without error? Or if you were talking to your unbelieving friend and they, asked, they said, hey, I heard you believe the Bible is without error. What do you mean by that? What would you tell your non-Christian neighbor as you're hanging out on the patio on a summer night? Okay, there are no inconsistencies. Yep, I think that's a pretty standard, standard answer. So there might be apparent inconsistencies in the Bible, but there are no true inconsistencies. Um, and then, of course, we'd have to talk about, well, what is an inconsistency? You know, for example, can Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tell women in the church, it's okay for you to pray and prophesy as long as you do it appropriately with your head covered? But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, say women should remain silent in the church. Is Paul inconsistent there? Or because the Corinthian church is so divided and there are so many factions, is he telling one faction who's like serving the Lord rightly but maybe a little bit inappropriately, keep doing that, keep praying and prophesying in the gathered assembly. But then you group of women who are being really loud in the assembly and distracting, you be quiet. Is it, you know, there are different ways of working through what looks like an inconsistency. Um, so we might say inerrancy means there are no inconsistencies. It's without error. What else? Okay, it does not make false claims. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty standard way of talking about it. And of course, then we'd have to ask, well, what does, it, what does true and false mean? You know, what is a false claim? Um, so, for example, when the biblical author says something like, as the sun was rising, is that biblical author making a false claim? Because the sun doesn't rise, scientifically, you know. Um, so, maybe there, even as we're saying the Bible doesn't make false claims, I think very automatically we have to add a caveat. Well... <laughs> according to which standard of truth and falsity, you know? Um, there are Christians who have killed people for saying that the sun is the center of the universe instead of the earth, based on things that are in the Bible. So, you know, like this true and false thing, we've got to start asking, you know, what do you mean by that? Uh, what else when inerrancy hits you? Yeah, so um, someone mentioned the original, was that Michelle? Yeah. So we all, do you know that we don't have the original manuscripts for any text of scripture? We only have copies of manuscripts. And what happens when you handwrite copies? Well, there are all kinds of errors that can creep in, but none that actually change our core teachings or the gospel. There may be some interpretive decisions that change, but um, imagine, imagine if I were here reading to you uh, like Genesis and all of you are scribes and you're going to be writing down everything that I say. Well, you can imagine certain kind of errors that would creep in. Some of you might be bad at spelling or you might live, you know, maybe you lived in a time where there's not standardized spelling. You know, this is the case with our Greek, Greek manuscripts. 
Um, or maybe there are words that sound the same, and you would write out the right phonetics, but the wrong word. You know, it could mean the same thing. Um, so maybe I say bow, and you write, you know, you write bow, B-O-W, in, in the wrong sense or something like that. So you can see how different errors. Or some scribes maybe are copying, and they're like, man, this is super not clear. This, you know... Paul had some bad sentence structure here. I'm going to, like, revise something. Or, um, you know, we have this tradition where we add in a line where our church responds with something. You know, this maybe happens at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for example, where there's a late addition, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's not in the oldest manuscripts, but none of those things add error to the Bible, we might say. Okay, anything else before I talk about what, how I would define inerrancy and what it's not. Okay, I want to say, and this, this is a little bit of my own, not my own definition, but there are groups of people who define inerrancy in different ways, and this is the way that I think is best. I think when we talk about the Bible being without error, I want to say it positively, first of all, not just negatively. Um, I want to say that the Bible is true in all that it affirms, okay? So the Bible is true in all that it affirms, okay? Um, so you can maybe, that's how some of the things I pointed out, this definition puts a little bit of a hedge up there. So when the Bible talks about the sun rising, is it affirming something about the ordering of our solar system? No, it's not. It's just speaking phenomenologically, experientially. And we all do that too, don't we? Um, on my phone, there's like a sunrise and sunset thing. Like we use those terminologies, even though it's not true according to the measurement of scientific knowledge or something like that. Um, but the Bible also makes other statements that, or it has sentences in it, and it's not actually affirming or saying something but someone could take that verse out of context and try to make it say something. Um, so that leads us to the first thing that the Bible is, in, what inerrancy is not. Inerrancy is not um, a guarantee that your interpretation will be absolutely true. So inerrancy applies to the Bible. The Bible is true that in all that it affirms. It doesn't apply to the way that people use the Bible. So people can use the Bible in a way that isn't true. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, one of the things that I think church members especially have to be conscious of is that there are multiple texts in the Bible that are really hard to interpret. And then Christians might interpret it differently. And what happens sometimes is one group of Christians who interprets it in way A We'll look at Christians in group B and say, you no longer believe in the truthfulness of the Bible. But what's actually going on is that there's just a difference in interpretation on a hard text, and it has nothing to do with denying the truthfulness or the authority of Scripture. So let me give you an example. Um, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and following, there are some really hard things, and even before that. So there's a text that says, I, I want men to pray, lifting up holy hands. First of all, I mean, we've got to ask, maybe we need to evaluate whether or not we're obeying the Bible on that one. 
But then we have to ask, well, does Paul want women to do this too? Or is that only for men? Um, does Paul want women to pray, but without lifting holy? You know, there are different questions we have to start asking. And then he says something like, in women, I don't want you to wear gold-plated hair or, you know, fine clothing because, um, you know, what's in your heart is where virtue is found. So don't dress in an ostentatious way. Well, I grew up in a world where they interpreted that, like, my sister couldn't, um, like, do a, a messy bun because it was too much of a, like, close to what, against that, what that text was saying. Um, so then you go further down, and Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Well, that's a tough one, because uh, when does somebody become a man? What does it mean to teach and have authority? And what does that word authority mean? You know, it's never used anywhere else in the Bible, and it might actually be the kind of authority that nobody should exercise over people, like a domineering, like, slave master kind of authority. You know, these are some hard questions. And then you go down further, and Paul says something like, um, if women persist in childbearing, um, they'll be saved if they continue in faith, hope, and love. Well, that's a hard verse, too, um, because if a woman asks me, how can I be saved, I don't think I'm going to say, have a lot of babies. Um, that's how you'll be saved. So that we, I'm trying to point out, this is a text where virtually every aspect of this paragraph is really, really difficult. But then what happens is people say, well, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe in the authority of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible. Uh, did I already say authority? Um, so if, if group B interprets any of that differently than I do, then they're denying those things. Well, I hope that as a church will come to recognize that's, that's not fair or right. Um, there are really legitimately some super challenging texts, and disagreement over them doesn't mean anyone's denying authority, inspiration, anything like that. So the way that this has worked out in the world I grew up in, if someone allowed a woman to teach or exercise authority in a church, people would say, well, you're denying the, the Bible. But then those people would be like, well, um, are you praying with holy hands, and are you telling women to get saved through childbirth? Well, no. Okay, well, then you're disobeying the Bible and denying it just as much as I am. And then Christians get really upset at each other. Hermeneutics and right understandings of these things, you know, these issues of inerrancy will lead us away from that. All right, so my main point is your interpretation isn't inerrant, infallible, authoritative. Um, the Bible itself is. And we have to admit that there are some texts that we might not ever fully get what's going on. Um, that's hard. Is that hard for you to say? Like there are texts of the Bible that we might not ever be able to 100% say this is what it means. The guy I was talking to earlier this week, not from our church, was like, I just hate it that we can't know 100% of what Revelation means. Like, yeah, I hate it too, but the reality is that every time we can't interpret a text of Scripture, it should remind us that we're not God and that God made us limited and finite. It should remind us that the Bible is written for us but not first to us. Um, it should remind us of our limitations and our need for Christ and our need for humility, okay? So, so that's the first thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, so authority, inspiration, errancy, infallibility does not apply to your interpretation of the Bible. 
especially when you run into somebody who disagrees with you on that interpretation, okay? Um, the second thing that inerrancy, infallibility, authority, all these things don't mean is that um, it, it doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is um, nonfiction, okay? So, so it doesn't mean that there are no fictional elements in the Bible, okay? Um, throw out some fictional elements in the Bible. Okay, so maybe there are story, illustrative stories that are told by certain people. What else? Yeah, I'd say the parables of Jesus are 100% fiction stories. Um, suppose, you know, you could suppose that Jesus knew of an event and he's basing a story on that. So now we have to expand our category to go beyond fiction versus nonfiction. Maybe there's like historical fiction or fictional history or these sorts of things. Are there any other texts in the Bible that you would say fall into the fiction end of the spectrum instead of the nonfiction end? Yeah, so Hosea, you know, people ask questions like, did God actually tell this guy to go marry a prostitute and then to support her while she goes back to being a prostitute? You know, so did, did this actually happen? Or is uh, this Hosea giving an extended illustration, an extended metaphor, conceit, that kind of thing? Yeah, what else? There are some that are really tough for me, okay? I, I think people make good arguments on both sides of fiction versus nonfiction for the book of Job, for example. Um, there's no author. There's no time... There's no, like, covenantal situation that we can place it in. It's this random guy who offers sacrifices on behalf of his kids, so there's nothing in Torah that we can find that correlates with that. Um, you get a really unique gateway into heaven scene, and if you think Job wrote it, well, the whole story indicates that Job was never given anything other than by God to explain the situation other than the greatness of God. You know, so... so Maybe, and it's all poetry, you know, all of the friends' responses. It reads like a Shakespeare play. So people make good arguments both sides. So let me ask a further question. Do we have to pick in order to affirm everything we're saying about the Bible and to interpret this story? Well, we, we can't say it's before the time of Moses. There's nothing to indicate that. It seems to be outside of Israel's covenantal structures. We don't know where Uz, the land of Uz, like pull up a Bible map and there will be like six question marks Uz. You know, I, you know like, um, yeah, let's keep talking. This is in Bible interpretation, believe it or not, because it applies, as we'll see, to another situation. Give someone else a chance. Okay, Esther. Um, is Esther historical or not? You know, I have like 10 pages of argument for historical in 10 pages that it's not historical. I don't know what to say about it. I, I have no idea. Um, it's, that's a tough one. You know, so if you're thinking of the story of Esther, for example, there are some, some reasons to doubt its historicity. Um, one is the names of all the people are like 
Babylonian gods and goddesses. So Ishtar and Marduk, Zessar and Mordecai. There's so much humor interlaced throughout. I met with a Jewish rabbi about this, and he said that they don't know either. You know, um, it's tough. It's really tough. It's the only book in the whole Old Testament that offers a holiday for Jews to celebrate that's not in the Torah. So some people say, man, this story was given to um, authorize the celebration of Purim, even though it's the only non-Torah holiday, non-Pentateuchal holiday. You know, these are some tough things. So, so let me ask you, uh, well, maybe I'll just say something, and then if you have questions, you can respond. I don't think any story in the Bible, um, like Job or Esther, that does not make a claim to historicity. Um, I don't think that we have to defend its historicity or argue for its fictionality, you know, or its historical fiction or whatever it might be. And this is why. Narrative is a vehicle for communicating truth however it's found. So that's reason number one. So in the same way that Jesus' parables can communicate truth, even though those events never happened, if Job is historical or not, to me it doesn't matter because it can still communicate truth um, regardless of historical reality. Now, I hope you heard the caveat of any text that does not claim historicity, it doesn't matter. There are some texts that do claim historicity and those really do matter. Um, so for example, Ruth, the story of Ruth, has this Davidic genealogy, and I want to say that's really, really important because we believe in a historical David. Um, the gospel authors' accounts that Jesus was an actual person who died and rose from the dead, those make claims to historicity. Job never does. Esther never does. You know, some of these accounts don't. How does that hit you? This is a more conversational class, okay? So... Or maybe everyone's already, like, fully convinced of this, and I'm just preaching to the choir. Yeah, why don't we circle back to that? I'll use that as an illustration for a later point. But that's a, I mean, you're thinking in the right way. So, um, so narratives are vehicles for truth. It, the poems are vehicles for truth. Um, it doesn't mean that it's all historical, just because the Bible's inerrant, authoritative, infallible. The next thing that those terms don't mean is that the Bible uses literal language in every occurrence. So sometimes people read the Bible in an overly literal way because they're not reading according to the function of language. Okay, so let me keep trying to explain what I mean. We'll keep turning it over. There, there are ways of saying things that are true with non-literal language. And sometimes the, the way to speak most truly is to use metaphors and analogies and figures of speech. So we've grown up in a world, a post-enlightenment scientific revolution that says the way to be most true is to be exacting and scientific. But that's not how almost all of human history has thought about truth. And even in our own experience, that's not how we can communicate things most truly. Now, in certain settings, that's the case, um, but for our, the regular rhythms of our lives, we hardly use scientific language to communicate what's truest and most real in our lives. Let me give an example. Um, 
hope. What is hope? Well, we could give a scientific definition. Does anyone have a scientific definition of hope? Like a very literal definition of hope? Yeah, um, engagement with external stimuli that activates the whatever part of the brain that induces a sense of expectation. So that's one way of talking about hope. Or we could say this, hope is a thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings a tune without words. Those are the first few lines of one of Emily Dickinson's poems about hope. You know, which one, of the, which one is more true? Well, I, I think the more true one is the second one. And that's what the biblical authors do over and over again, is they speak in metaphor and analogy, um, not to mention they use standard conventions of their day. So, for example, even the most conservative scholars say that whenever people were listing armies and the number of people in an army, they would give a multiple of 10 or 100. So instead of saying you had 100 guys in this regiment, you would write on your list 1,000. You know, that's, that's the standard convention for, like, all time. And that's in, in the ancient Near East. And that's probably happening in um, Exodus, for example. And that doesn't mean it's a lie. It's just stand, following standard writing conventions of the day. So we have to factor in language. We have to factor in writing conventions. Inerrancy does not mean literalistic use of language. All right, anything anyone wants to ask or say about that? Okay, I know we're pushing to like exercise some hard critical thinking things here, but um, the, the next thing that inerrancy is not, it is not a statement um, that, how do, how do I want to say this? I think I still have sick brain going on here. Um, for the Bible to be an errant, authoritative, infallible does not mean that when the Bible gives us historical accounts that it's giving us a bare record of history, okay? The Bible is always giving us a theological interpretation of history. It's n- almost never trying to give us bare facts in just recording events, okay? But that's how we might be tempted to engage the Bible as if it's giving us a bare record of history. But the Bible is interpreting events in giving us a theological interpretation and it um, gives us certain points of view. It takes certain literary licenses, these biblical authors do, to get that theological interpretation across. Um, let me give you an example of how we interpret events using non-literal, bare historical fact language. Um, Kate and I, I think, literally almost died a few months ago trying to get onto 35 South by Quick Trip is some guy blasted through a red light and almost T-boned us. Um, so when I was describing that to someone, I was like, this guy came flying at us a million miles an hour. Well, Almost every word in there is not bare record of historical fact. No one was flying, certainly not at a million miles an hour. But we're interpreting the danger of the situation and using all kinds of conventions to do it. Um, The Bible does this too. So, for example, when you read all of the Gospels, these um, apostles 
these disciples are trying to communicate the theological significance of who Jesus is and what he did, and they do it in different ways to draw attention to different things. So sometimes they'll arrange the material in different ways, or they'll give you a little bit of a different angle on it and leave something else out completely. Um, so that's not, they're not trying to make a historical claim in the way we're talking about it. Like we want a video camera, body cam, like full record of something. They're interpreting the event. Uh, there's no way for anyone to write a bare record of history. It's always interpreted, it's always from a particular angle, and it's always limited. And that's what the biblical authors do as well. Um, I'll give you one example from the biblical text. Um, there, there are two accounts of the Exodus. Do you know this? Okay. So there's the one where there's this talking of the ten plagues, and then um, they go out and they're crossing the Red Sea, and the waters part, and they cross over and the waters fall down. You know, that's more of a narratival, more like literal sort of language way of talking about it. But then there's another way of talking about it in Exodus 15 that's just as true, but maybe even truer, actually, if we can say one part of the Bible is truer than the other. And this is what it sounds like. Um, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers drowned in the sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Um, where's the line I'm looking for? Oh, verse 10. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. You know, or in ESV, I think it's you blasted them from your nostrils. Well, these are ways of talking about what happened, but they're not literalistic or bare records of fact. They're interpretations, theological interpretations of what happened. Does this make sense? So when, when some guy, like uh, who's that Duke guy who argues for atheistic everything? Sure. Or Richard, Richard Dawkins, is that his name? When, when these guys start saying, well, the Bible, historically true. They're imposing a category of the Bible must either be bare record of fact or it's all a lie. They don't understand how literature works. They don't understand what the biblical authors are doing with the text, and that's a problem. So when you run into those types, you know, you need to be able to engage with them in this way. These authors are not trying to give us a bare record of fact. They're interpreting events. Um, does this make sense? Okay. Um, the final, the final thing I want to say about inerrancy. Inerrancy doesn't necessarily operate in the categories of objective and subjective truth. This is sort of a post-enlightenment thing of all reality is objectively or subjectively known. You know, it's a bare fact or it's just my experience of a fact. Um, the biblical authors are operating in the world that they're in, so they're going to tailor their language to fit those philosophical categories. So I said I'd return to your, your example. When we want to know what the Bible says about creation, um, Christians disagree about this. Uh, so if we were to say, because we're like part of the new covenant, let's lean into how the New Testament talks about creation. Well, the New Testament documents are written in a world of Greco-Roman 
background. Um, there are these Greek philosophical categories that shaped the way that they articulated creation. So can anyone give me a couple of creation accounts from the New Testament? New Testament, yeah. Yeah, John 1. So that, that's one way, one true way of talking about creation. And if you got into Greek philosophy, you'd know logos, word, is how we translate it, is this huge thing. You know, the, there's this whole category of the logos, is this emanation of God. You know, it's kind of a complicated issue. But my point here is that John is operating within that world and setting something right. Okay, what's another creation account in the New Testament? Romans 1 is a decreation account where humans become less human. Um, but there's a simple statement that God created. Yeah. I'm thinking Colossians, you know, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He's holding all things together. Um, so there are different ways of talking about creation. So to Tim's point, inerrancy doesn't mean that there's only one way of describing creation. Um, inerrancy doesn't mean that there aren't multiple ways of expressing truth. Now, you might say, well, we need to give Genesis primacy because it's the first thing that we have. I mean, I just want you to realize that's a position you would be holding to say that's the go-to creation account. That's what we would want taught everywhere in all places, and we don't care about John's account. You know, I don't think anyone would say it that starkly because we all care about John's account too. But my point is that there are different ways of talking about the same thing, and they're all true, even if it looks like it might conflict. It's true because it's a theological interpretation that's emphasizing one aspect of that reality. Now, let me t bring you to Genesis to make one final point here. It's also true that the same biblical author can describe one event in different ways. Okay? So, believe it or not, but there are two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the first one spans Genesis 1-1 all the way down through 2-3. Okay? So you have this pattern of seven days. You have forming things and then filling it, you know. So you form categories for day and night, and then you fill it with the sun and the moon. You create the category of water and dry land. You form that, and then you fill it with animals, you know. So there's a lot going on there, but that's one way of talking about creation that Moses gives us. And then to the point of day, you know, this is the thing people always want to talk about, which I think is the least interesting thing to talk about, um, whether or not a day is 24 hours or not. It, you know, there's this Hebrew word yom that's used there. Moses isn't trying to make that point, I don't think, especially because the way he arranges it, the sun and the moon, the things we use to measure days aren't created till day four. So these are just complicated things that you have to wrestle with. But then Second, when you go down to Genesis 2, 4, it says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. On the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, no shrub of the field, and then it goes into this account where now it's like restarting and telling it from a different perspective. So in the first creation account, you can talk about humans being created in God's image. Um, in the second creation account, 
you have uh, this guy being made from the dust and then living for a while and then being put to sleep and a woman being made from his side. Well, which one of those is true? Both of them are true. But Moses himself gives us two different ways of thinking about the creation of humanity. Does this make sense how like, they're giving us theological truths embedded in this vehicle? Now, that doesn't answer all of our questions, you know, but I, I think you could be a happy Christian with, like, being shaped by the Bible with some tension there and knowing that Christians disagree on some of these things. Um, there are some lowest common denominators, though. What's the lowest common denominator about creation? God. Um, and I would say because the New Testament is actually the Bible as well, Christ is an irreplaceable uh, part of creation. Genesis doesn't talk about that. Um, so it's tough, isn't it? Um, we're at the end of our time. I didn't get to rebalancing us on anything. So what, this is what I want to say. I hope that as you're leaving, you're thinking about this. You're thinking about what kind of book the Bible is. We'll talk about translations next week, but a lot of this rebalancing will come as we start to work through different um, interpretive practices and we talk about genres. So if you feel a little bit uncomfortable, if you're feeling like, wait, I don't know how to read the Bible anymore, that's, that's actually kind of where you sh- what you should be feeling because then you'll be able to re-engage it as a better reader of the Bible in the weeks ahead. All right, we've got to end because I'm over time, but um, thank you.